The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. So probably tonight will be the last night in our uh, topic with our topic of patience and in particular looking at patience as a daily life quality, something that we can cultivate and live with in daily life as a way of, of uh, supporting what we call samadhi, this unification, so being fully present. Patience is a real tool, uh, a real skillful means to help us be more collected and uh, skillful in life. That's really its role. And, you know, we need all the help we can get in being skillful in life. One of the passages from the Buddha is that uh, anger or you could generalize it to any kind of reactivity, is like picking up a hot coal, you know, to throw at somebody, to throw at whatever we're reacting against. And the first basic insight is to understand that we are first and foremost the person that gets burnt. So, you know, and all the different things that we're facing in our lives, whether it's just the ordinary thing of, you know, trying to do all the work we need to do or <clears throat> dealing with challenging relationships or dealing with the world like we live with, live in, dealing with our bodies. Anytime we're inclined to react, it's like picking up a hot coal. It doesn't actually work for us to invest in reactivity, to get identified and act out in reactive ways. And this is really the, you know, the first skill is to see that our habit energy, which is to react to one thing after another, basically, just to get that it doesn't work. Now, we may not be able to stop ourselves from reacting but just to see that it doesn't work. We are truly the fortunate ones being here tonight because that means we're not, at least right now, watching the debate. <laughs> and uh, if you're like me in these sort of situations, you know, we react. I hear something and then I react. Oh, that ain't right. Or, yeah, way to go. Or something like that. And uh, now we can get really caught up in the content, and we'll miss the fact that we're picking up a hot coal each time we react. We're, re we're literally burning ourselves or constricting the heart. Every time the mind gets identified with self-righteousness or arrogance or fear or you know, any of the unwholesome states, anything that spins out of greed, fear, aversion, and denial, delusion, is painful. It's like getting burnt. 
And so we might think, well, first we just need to clean up the world and then I'll be able to relax, you know, and then I won't have to be so reactive. If I could just get the world all together, get my life all together, my mind all together, and then the rest of you guys all together, then I would actually be able to be spacious and patient and non-reactive. But that ain't going to (laughs) happen. And we have to realize that it's just... uh, that it's actually not appropriate for us to assume it should be that way. I mean, who told us that the world is supposed to be neat and tidy and perfect? So instead of, you know, there's this famous uh, simile used by the Buddha, you know, we have two choices. We can, to avoid pricking our foot with all the sharp objects around, we can cover the whole world in leather, or we can make a pair of shoes. And uh, Buddha considered these teachings like the more skillful option, which is to build a pair of shoes. So instead of trying to fix the whole world, we just correct what's off with the mind, this basic misperception, which is we take all the imperfections within and outside of ourselves personally. It's like a personal affront that the politics is like this, or the world is like this, or my partner is like this, or my living situation is like this, or my work situation is like this. We take all of that personally. My habit energy is like this. And so the correction that needs to be uh, made through insight is to recognize that there's a different way to relate to our habit energy, to our loved ones, to our work situation, to the world situation. There's a different way to relate, which is not taking it personally, but instead meeting it with patience or stillness. And this is a real, uh, it's a real art, like to figure out how to do this. But first we have to just have a sense that the way we're living now isn't really working. Like somehow believing in the power of reactivity, investing in reactivity, we got to get to some degree at least that this may not be the right way. And then the next step, once we have enough faith, enough of uh, faith that we may be wrong, you know, that our in uh, inclination to react, to try to fix, that may not be the way. When we have enough faith there, then we're willing to begin this very difficult next step, which is to peacefully, and of course it's not so easy to be peaceful here, but to peacefully coexist with all of our inclinations to react, but to refrain from actually reacting, acting it out. So. Our inclination, our habit to react isn't going to disappear anytime soon because it's, it's got a lot of momentum. But we have this capacity to refrain from acting out all of our impulses, right? I mean, we are all are already, to some degree, refraining from acting out some of our impulses. So we're just going to take that to the nth degree. I mean, as much as we can. 
So what that does is it allows us to begin to see the force of reactivity. We see how pervasive the impulse to react. I mean, even right now, I mean, you could be reacting to being here. Like, either way, reacting like, boy, this is the best thing I've ever heard, or this is stupid, I'd much rather be watching the debate. So either way, we could be reacting to this. But there's, instead we could, we could just refrain. So we're feeling the impulse to feel like how fortunate I am, how I want to be here every Wednesday night, or I wish I didn't come, I wish I were home. We can just feel that force, but just in, in refraining from acting it out, we get this opportunity to see that it's just what it is. It's just an impulse in the mind, and it's not self. Because greed uh, and the one and knowing greed, it's not the same thing. Being caught in greed or being caught in aversion and knowing there's aversion, knowing there's greed, they're two different experiences. So knowing there's an impulse in the mind is different than being lost or caught, identified with that impulse. And this is, this is how we develop confident in the, confidence in the practice of just staying, 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 staying. Staying right in the middle, right in the moment, trusting this capacity to be open and spacious, and to let the mess be the mess, to let things move, to let the mind move, to let emotion move. So we're not suppressing the reactivity. We're not suppressing the impulses. We're observing them. We're knowing them. We're seeing what's going on. Oh, it's like this. This is what's so shocking, you know, because we think we're going to meditate in order to get some relief, but it sometimes there really is some relief. Of course, other th- otherwise we'd really give up. But a lot of the time, what we see is the force of our habits of reactivity. But hopefully we, over time, learn to meet that force, uh, that movement of the mind with space. The space of, a mindful, of mindful presence, or the space of wisdom, or the space of compassion. You know, these different words that point the mind toward what's already here. It's not even that we have to cultivate space in order to meet all the stuff that's moving. It's more, uh, it's more than not getting caught in the movement of the mind, not getting caught in the movement of emotion. So not suppressing it, but not getting diluted by it, that we start to recognize the space of love or the space of wisdom, the space of the mind, that can just let things be, even when it's messy, even when it's painful. But when the mind gets fixed on the what's moving, the thought that's moving, you know, the thought, thought that's arising, what happens if Barak does win? Is he trustworthy? What happens if uh, McCain wins, you know? If the mind grips, then we forget about space. There's no space in the mind. There's just that drama, that world. We're inside that box. 
immediately. But if, if to whatever degree we recognize the thought's just a thought, the emotion's just an emotion, then there's the beginning of space. <clears throat> and then at this phase, when there's enough confidence, then there's uh, what the Buddha calls starving the hindrances, star- starving the defilements. So here we are, in a somewhat feeble way, learning to rest, to trust in the space of a loving, wise heart. So we're resting in the space of the present moment, and we're just letting things, because of the habit, energy, the momentum of the mind, and everything that's left over from the day and every day that came before, you know, there's a lot of stuff moving. But to whatever degree we're able to be patient with that, to be spacious, to be receptive, then there's this uh, starving of the hindrances. There's, we're starving these impulses because we're not feeding them with identification. What feeds the habits of the mind is every time we get identified with the habit. Every time we take it personally, we're, we're reinforcing its strength. Every time we recognize it from the place of love or wisdom, where we see it's just what it is. It's just a thought. It's just an emotion. It's just fear. It's just desire. And then it weakens it. It weakens the delusion, the tendency to take it personally. And this is, uh, some of you might have heard the term tapas, sometimes used in yoga practice. Now, there's even a style of yoga practice, I forget what it's called. Is it power yoga, where they turn up the thermostat, get the room really hot? Is that what it's called? Bikram yoga? And uh, so in yoga... Uh, there's this idea of tapas, like spiritual practice. You kind of turn up the heat one way or another. Like you put yourself in a situation where, you, where you're confined. You know, like you go on a retreat where you're not allowed to speak. Or, you know, you, you take up uh, a spiritual practice where you're not going to eat past noon. Or where, um, you know, you're going to sit every day. Or you're going to go to Kamgran every Wednesday night. Or... You know, you're going to get married. There are all kinds of spiritual practices where we intentionally confine ourselves to one thing or to one activity or two. And then there's the burn, right? Because just because we've made this commitment doesn't mean we don't want to go to common ground on a Wednesday night. And so there we are, you know, 7 o'clock... You know, and, you know, I could do this, I could do... And, and we have to, all those impulses to not go, they're there wanting just like with a lot of momentum. But the burn is we see them and we put them down. And we see them and we put them down. And we have to keep seeing them because in a moment of not seeing that impulse means we're going to just run with it. Not seeing that it's just an impulse in the mind, we'll just do it. It's like... You may be sitting on the couch having had a nice meal and then have the impulse to go have something to eat. And, you know, you say, oh, that's just desire, you know, and you kind of settle back down. And 
watch your show, and then the impulse is there again. And if one moment of not being mindful, before you become mindful again, you might be at the refrigerator and eating. Just because of a few moments of not being mindful, not recognizing that that's just a thought, that's just desire. So there's this burning, this burning away of our habit energy, which is the continuity of mindful presence, where we're feeling all of the movement in the mind, but we're not acting it out. And this is very useful practice in daily life. For example, when we're, for whatever reason, have to be around somebody that pushes our buttons, which in any way pushes our buttons in the sense that we're really attracted to this person and we want them to really like us or we, you know, or we're really aversive to this person and, and really don't like being around them or really want some kind of revenge, like this person hurt us and we'd like to, on some level, whether we admit it consciously, we'd like to hurt them too, get even. And so there we are with all this that's alive in us wanting this person to like us or wanting to get even with this person. But we know enough, there's enough sense that this is like a hot coal. If we take a hold of this, we're just going to get burnt. We're going to hurt ourselves much more than we're ever going to hurt that person. And so just that, uh, that resiliency, that uh, effort to be mindful, to not forget that this impulse, these impulses, are just what they are. They're not self. It's just a thought. It's just an emotion. That's arising due to causes and conditions. And this resolve not to feed it. Now, of course, we will feed it. You know, we will space out. We will, uh, our resolve will weaken. We'll get seduced. Maybe this person really does deserve my anger. So it's how, all of a sudden anger starts to make sense. We don't we forget it's a hot coal and it hurts to pick it up and it starts making sense. Like, yeah, I should be angry. This person, and it, it feels like somehow we'd be making a mistake not to be angry at this person. Like it's inappropriate to refrain from being angry, to refrain from acting it out. So we pick it up and we get burnt. Has a great quote. If you haven't read any of Charlotte Jokobeck's uh, works, she has two well-known books: Everyday Zen and uh, Ordinary Zen. Nothing special. Nothing special. Thanks. Yeah, and uh, one, and from one of those books, she has this line: "I don't think we ever let go of anything. I think what we do is just wear things out." <laughs> And so this is so much of our practice that if we don't acknowledge it together, we'll get, we'll get, uh, we'll lose resolve. This patient endurance, this tapas, where we've got enough wisdom to know that we shouldn't act out our impulses, or at least some of our impulses, but we don't have enough clarity to see through them to kind of pop them. So we're still feeling the force of our habit energy, but we know enough that we shouldn't get identified with it. And this part of spiritual life, which is so much of our practice, especially out there in the world, is uh, we need a lot of support from our friends. 
you know, instead of our friends being uh, kind of codependent or like saying, yeah, you should get, you know, sort of encouraging us to act out our habit energy, you know, what we want are friends that appreciate how difficult it is to be a human being, to have a conditioned mind, to have this force of habit, and to be willing to be present because we can't suppressing it doesn't work we have to let it be alive that's part of the burning out process we have to give freedom for these impulses to arise in the mind because we have to see them they have to move but the the burning comes in letting them move without getting identified with them that's the burning that's the real work of spiritual practice is to feel what's alive in us, what's unfinished, what's moving, without getting caught by it, without being deluded by it. So we don't want to deny that we're in anger, that we have anger as part of our condition, or that we have doubt as part of our conditioning, or we have lust as part of our conditioning, or self-righteousness as part of our conditioning. We want to acknowledge this is alive in the mind, this is part of its conditioning, without taking it personally. There's an interesting journal. Maybe you've seen uh, Buddha Dharma. It's by the same people that do Shambhala Sun, but it's more of a practice journal as opposed to a more kind of popular magazine on Buddhism. And a couple of years ago, they, well, actually, they, they continue to do this, where they take some Dharma question, and then they interview three teachers, usually one from the Zen tradition, one from the Tibetan tradition, and one from the Theravada tradition. And so in this one, they interviewed uh, Blanche Hartman, who was used to be one of the abbesses at uh, the San Francisco Zen Center. I think she's retired now. And Guy Armstrong from Spirit Rock, one of my favorite teachers. And then a Tibetan teacher I don't know, Rigu Tukko. Um, But I want to read a little bit of what Guy Armstrong says. And this, all the questions around the interview had to do with the kalesas. The kalesas is just another word for um, the hindrances. Usually kalesas uh, translated as defilements of mind. But remember, all the defilements in the Buddhist system come out of ignorance. So ignorance is sort of the primary defilement. The essential defilement is not seeing things clearly. That's called ignorance. And then because of the not seeing things clearly, we have a tendency to be in denial, to sort of um, not invest in clarity. So we call that delusion. And because of ignorance, there's a tendency for aversion. Because we invest in not seeing things clearly, or denial, or distraction, then we constantly uh, end up getting burnt in life, because we're not paying attention. And then we get angry, you know? And then, because of how painful anger is, we desire relief. So then craving is born. And so we've got these three sort of forces of of, uh, of the mind. This is kind of what defines our ordinary conventional existence. Habit energies, mental habits, driven by greed, anger, delusion. Now, there's also wholesome forces 
But when we look at the world, we should be honest, you know, most of what we see around us are the results of greed, anger, and delusion. And a lot of even what we take to be wholesome is uh, really, if we look carefully, we see that it's mixed up with greed, anger, and delusion. And the people that, in moments at least, are really not acting out of one of those three, acting on one of those three forces, it really stands out when we see people like that. I'm not saying it doesn't happen, and certainly it happens in all of us in moments. But those moments stand out. So the Buddha recognized in his own life, in his own mind, he recognized the force of the kalesas, the defilements of greed, anger, delusion, and all the different manifestations and recognize that every time the mind gets identified with one of these forces, it's like picking up a hot coal, which, of course, would motivate anybody to find another way than having to keep picking them up and discovering that we can be aware of them, which is not not repressing them, because repressing them is just another defilement. It's being afraid of the defilements is a defilement. Distracting ourselves or being in denial of the defilements is a defilement. Wanting to be free of the defilements is a defilement. So what's left? <coughs> Understanding the defilements for what they are. That's what's left. So after a lot of mistakes, you know, human beings through trial and error come upon what the Buddha suggested, which is invest in awareness. And so these teachers are just discussing how, you know, how in each of the different Buddhist traditions people talk about working with the defilements. So I'll just read some different sections. This is from Guy Armstrong. He says, Westerners aren't used to a system that looks at things over a long period of time, periods of time. So as teachers, it's helpful for us to adjust our aim a little bit. Instead of pointing students to the removal of the kalesas, the defilements from the very beginning, we need to focus students on being unbothered by the kalesas. The true sense of equanimity is not that the emotions go away, but that when we meet any emotion, we find that we have the capacity, the capability to be with it without being afraid or running away or without letting it force us to do foolish things. And so this is the first part that I was talking about earlier where, you know, of course, we'd like to be done with aversion and greed and denial and distraction. But getting caught in those thoughts is also a bit, it's like picking up a hot coal. So the first thing that we can do, and this is, this is something all of us can do, is we can cultivate a sense of compassion and understanding for the predicament we're in. We are human beings. We have this conditioned mind. Because the mind's conditioned, meaning it's, 
it's got this momentum of habit energy, it means that there is greed. There are these afflictive emotional habits. And if we stop reacting to them, we'll discover this capability, which mostly goes unnoticed. We'll discover this capability of being mindful, of being spacious, of being wise and loving with the way it is. But if we're constantly reacting, we'll never realize that this is even a possibility. Like, for example, I mean, going back to politics, because, of course, it's in the air right now. And doesn't it seem, maybe not for everybody here, but probably for most of us here, it seems like uh, so inevitable, so appropriate to, when we hear something, to take sides, to react. But we don't need to say that. Like, whoever you're against, if you're against someone, you know, just to bring that person to mind with a spacious mind, like, like understanding that I don't want to pick up hot coals, this person doesn't want to pick up hot coals, but yet we do tend to pick up hot coals. This really moves the heart toward compassion. Like how we're all caught being who we are. You know, we are our habit energies. And uh, that's afflictive, and that is a cause, can be a cause for compassion. And compassion is the spacious quality of mind that can recognize that things are the way that they are. It's not a reactive mind. Compassion understands there is suffering, and I care about it. There is confusion, and I care about it. Now, if you can't do that, you just keep looking at where the rigidity is or where the reactivity is. You keep including it, keep including it, noticing it for what it is, learning to coexist with it, to be a little bit more receptive, a little softer, a little bit more patient, a little bit more understanding. And then this is uh, just the continuation the next time Guy Armstrong speaks in this interview. When kalesas are directly experienced in our practice and in our life, the energies that they bring up are quite frightening to the untrained person. To feel that one is in the grip of anger or in the grip of fear or strong desire scares us. Our culture hasn't trained us how to be with them. So we need a lot of guidance and support in opening and softening and realizing that we can feel these energies within our minds and bodies and hearts without their actually damaging us. Little by little, we can become more comfortable with feeling the energies directly. Therefore, the mind can remain undisturbed even when the kalesa is present. And this is the real... Uh, transforming power of the practice. So at first, we just get a little stability, a little faith that we don't need to react and we can just be present. And this is the slow burn phase of practice, the tapas, where we've got the strong inclination to get identified, but we're training the mind just to be steady, feeling 
seeing, experiencing without acting the mouth. But the more we do that, the more space we bring, the more perspective or insight we have about what these forces are. We start to see that the very, uh, uh, the very impersonal, they're conditional forces of the mind. They're not personal forces, they're conditional forces. And they're also impermanent. And this really begins to transform our relationship to them. But we'll never have insight if we're not willing to go through the slow burn. It's exactly the slow burn phase that sets up the insight. If we're not willing to just be with the messiness of our habit energy, spacious, letting the emotions, the movement of the mind and heart be as big as it is, not being afraid of how big it is. You know, when anger is arising, it will feel like it's just going to take us over. But we should observe to see whether that actually happens. Whether when there's a lot of lust or greed or desire, whether it will actually destroy us. Because it might feel like it is. Like, if I don't do something about this, I'll die. But we don't die. We actually have the capacity to be with whatever emotion, whatever is moving. It just, we may feel like we're suffocating. We may feel like we're being... Uh, pushed into a corner, crushed, weighed down by some strong mental state, emotional state. But you'll see, if the more you do it, you'll see that it's actually uh, healing to let things move, to let this stuff happen. It's healing, on immediately healing, and it sets up this insight. The more we're able to see things come and go on the mind, emotions come and go, the more this insight dawns in the mind that it's anicca, it's impermanent, they're ephemeral, insubstantial, dukkha, unsatisfying, meaning any kind of identification is picking up a hot coal. That's what dukkha means. Any attachment, any identification burns. And anatta, not self. It's an impersonal conditional happening. These insights arise because of the willingness to be in that slow burn place where we're feeling the impulse to react, to take things personally, but there's enough wisdom to be patient, to just let things happen, to feel what we're feeling over and over again. In this interview, Blanche Hartman talks about a bumper sticker, which I've seen too, which is, don't believe everything you think. And actually, we had it up in our bulletin board upstairs for many years, and then downstairs. And one day, somebody crossed, the, crossed out everything and said, anything. <laughs> don't believe anything you think. <laughs> I'm not sure that's true, but maybe. But certainly, don't believe everything you think is true. It's like transforming our relationship to thought. Instead of thoughts being Mark talking to Mark, thoughts are just conditional happening. They arise due to causes and conditions. Sometimes our thoughts are quite wise. Sometimes our thoughts are really ignorant. Sometimes our thoughts are kind of meaningless. I mean, they're just like, they don't make sense. And so if we're really honest with ourselves, it really helps undermine the habit of taking it personally. When we see that, our thoughts are all over the place. 
I mean, if we really paid attention to all the thoughts that go through the mind, we would very quickly have this insight that thoughts are not personal. But we are selective. We just pay attention to the thoughts that reinforce the sense of self, thoughts that I might say to myself, for example. (laughs) And we ignore all the other silly thoughts, meaningless thoughts, thoughts from outer space, you know, that don't make any sense whatsoever because they would disrupt our delusion that thoughts are personal, that they're coming from me. But the mind has been set in motion due to many, many, many different causes and conditions, and the thoughts arise out of that. And the feeling that they're personal is just a habit that we tag on to selected thoughts, and the rest we ignore. I want to read a little bit more from Guy. Our culture hasn't trained us how to be with them, so we need a lot of guidance and support in opening and softening, in realizing that we can feel these energies within our minds and bodies and hearts without their actually damaging us. Little by little, we can become more comfortable with feeling the energies directly. Therefore, the mind can remain undisturbed even when the kalesas, when the kalesa is present. And then one last thing. He says, it can be very humbling to see that as much as we try to meditate and keep our good intentions, our words and actions do get away from us. In that case, we simply have to make space to realize we're, we're human. Learning on the cushion how to relate with these states inwardly does tend to give us a little, a little more space when they arise in daily life. That little bit of space gives us more choices about whether to remain quiet, whether to speak, and if we speak, what to say. We start to develop the fine art of letting go inwardly while being restrained outwardly. Right? So we're, we're giving permission for the mind the emotions, the thoughts rather, and emotions to move freely, to naturally arise in the space of the present moment, to pass away, not to pick and choose, not to be afraid of how big or strong a thought or emotion might be. But outwardly, we do restrain ourselves from identifying and acting them out. And it's a real art because we don't want to suppress the uh, force, the momentum of the mind, the the momentum of emotion. It needs to move, but it doesn't need to be believed and acted out. So that's that slow burn. Again, another way of talking about that slow burn. There's one more sentence here. It's quite a dance to try to do both of those at the same time, but that's how the inner silent work and the work of the outer relationship operate together. So I'll leave it here so that we have uh, time to hear from each other. Maybe you have some experiences from your own practice that you could share with the group. Questions about patience or examples of really being with strong emotional, mental states knowing, having enough wisdom to not act it out, but feeling a little bit rocked or shaken by the force or the strength of 
what's alive in the heart, alive in the mind. So what comes to mind? Hi, Kathleen. Um, well, this morning I wanted to stay in bed, but I really like Qigong. 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 And I had all these thoughts about how late I was up and how comfortable it was. And finally I said to myself, um, I think, <laughs> that none of that is real and I can get up and go. And nobody said I couldn't go late. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, those those thoughts are very compelling. But if we can see it's just a thought. It doesn't necessarily represent truth. It's just a thought. Thanks, Kathleen. Other thoughts people have? Yeah, Maria. Well, I don't really know if this is relevant to that I've, I've discovered um, since I renewed my mindfulness trainings a thousand couple weeks ago here. You know, I it's a great speech thing. <laughs> I like the attention I get when I say something nasty about someone and it's funny. You know, <laughs> it's like a way of relating in the workplace. Yeah. Um, chair of my department, you know, for the first time in 20 years, someone who's actually a friend, and so she kind of likes to vent, and she feels safe doing that around me, and a lot of times I agree with the kind of stuff she says about people, and sometimes I join in, and then sometimes I also just want to, like, a few, I actually caught myself in the car, and, and said, you know, it's getting right home after the meeting, and look at the sun coming through the leaves or something like that. You know, it just kind of changed the subject. And it worked. Um, and I've tried different things with this. I've tried telling people, well, I'm trying to be positive, and it's afraid I lose all my friends. Actually, a number of them said, oh, what a good idea. I'll try that too. Um, but, but it really is just, I mean, uh, and then, you know, also the other thing that's coming up a lot this week is the idea of, of, and I think they're related, feeling a lot of resistance in myself, and then, um, like, wishing I could, could just, like, go in and, I mean, like, resistance to things that I know are good for me, resistance to certain, to facing certain things. Wish I could just, like, put something in my brain to, like, and pull out the resistance. Yeah. Know, yeah. <laughs> but you know the people who I trust say, well, you know, if you try to if you try to fight the feeling of resistance, you'll just resist more. Um, it's kind of a, I mean, it's a little bit of a relief to know I'm not really in control. But yeah. on the other hand, it's kind of like you know, like I want to be this good person, and I'm just looking at all the ways that I'm, you know, I like. I like doing things that get me attention that aren't necessarily good for me, and I cling to a certain personality structure or a deep psychological structure that isn't necessarily serving me. 
and I can't, I can't just let go by realizing it would be a weakness to let go. I guess that's the common thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. But there's a lot of insight in what you've said. You know, like, uh, you wouldn't have been able to say what you just said without having had some real clarity, like both an interest and the capacity to use the mind to know the mind. And it's just a matter of to keep doing what we're doing and not to be in a hurry. And one of the ways it helps us not be in such a hurry is to consciously recognize the wholesomeness of seeing what you're seeing, which you're already seeing. Like, that's already a transformation. Because before you weren't seeing those things, now you are seeing those things. There is change happening. And what we tend to do, because we have critical minds, is we, you know, we can imagine being further along than we are, and then we judge ourselves. But what we, what we can do instead is appreciate that something is afoot, something is happening. There is this wholesome force of interest in the mind. And seeing that there are more and less skillful ways to be relating. And just that whole possibility is freeing. You know, just that there's actually something wholesome to cultivate is really empowering. It's much more empowering than thinking that feeling helpless in the world that we're just a victim of circumstance, you know, and our mind is our mind and there's really nothing we can do about it. And But just to see that the mind can be transformed and then to be willing to be patient, like to just <coughs> deal with this moment so that the being in patience is what to work with right now. Like if we would like to just remove that habit, the wanting to remove that habit is what's afflictive right now. It's not the habit that's the problem right now. It's the not liking the habit that's the problem right now. And we can directly work with that by being spacious with it. Oh, this is called aversion. Not liking this habit is like this. Can I give it space to be the way it is? Can I allow it to move? Can I be fearless with it? Not take it personally. Thanks, Maria. Yeah, Tom, and then somebody else back there I can't see. Okay. Away. But, but the idea is just to stay with it. So even if we start getting, getting identified and swept away with it, don't leave, don't let go of the mindfulness. So it's, it's developing um, confidence and awareness 
so that no matter where we are, whether we're, we are kind of just able to be mindful of the lust, the desire, see it bloom, but not identified, or we do get identified and we do start to act it out, but wherever we are, we bring mindfulness along. Because then that's the only way we'll learn whether that lust was actually skillful or unskillful. And we don't actually, by definition, you know, when I use lust, I mean unskillful, but there are forces of desire that aren't unskillful. Desire is neutral. It's just a question of how much attachment there is with it. The the attachment is what's unskillful. Falling in love isn't unskillful. Being attached to the idea that this is going to make me happy forever, that's unskillful. That's a setup for suffering. But the sort of forward motion in life, choosing this versus choosing that, that just comes with life. We can't help but uh, being moved by desire. Even the desire to be mindful, you know, is a desire. So desire is just synonymous with being alive. Having life energy is the same as desire. But when we get identified with it. So I think that the key is with something like lust, but I, you know, I would say the same is true with anger. There's a lot of sweetness with anger too. You know, it like gets us excited. We feel alive when we're angry, when we're self-righteous, even when we're afraid. So we just, when we are swept away by our emotions and our thoughts, as much as we can, remember that mindfulness would be useful here. Let's see. So this feels really appropriate to be acting out this anger. It feels really appropriate to to deliver this message to this person. So let me just be here. Let me feel what it's like to deliver the message. Let me feel what it's like after delivering the message. Let me feel what it's like when the person starts to deliver a message to me. (laughs) And just stay present. And so we learn from, you know, when we're off, then we learn. We, We see the natural consequences of having been off. Thanks, Amanda. Yeah, Tom? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's a that's a good question because this early stage in practice, there is a heavier uh, emphasis on refraining. So it is a kind of tightness. So the initial, the, the sort of untrained human being, our habit is just like, you know, it's just like a vomit. You know, we're just sort of acting out unrestrained our habit energy. And then we realize, we get a sense of how smelly and messy that is, and we start to refrain ourselves. And there, the side effect of that is it feels a little tight. And I don't know if there's any way to avoid that, except that it's, uh, it's a wholesome fear. It's like we see how messy it is when we just let our habit energies express themselves unhindered. And so we inefficiently start to rein in. And we're not skillful yet at sort of letting emotions move, but not acting out like Guy Armstrong was saying, where we want to have this inner freedom for the emotions and the mind states to come and go. 
but all we're doing is refraining our action. But what we tend to do is we tend to take the refraining inside, and we don't want to have the lust. We don't want to have the anger. And that, you know, that's like uh, mental constipation, where we're like afraid to have the mind that we have, afraid to have the emotions that we, we have. But it just takes time to learn how to let things move, but be still. And I tell you, when you watch people who meditate a long, who've been meditating a long time, they're set, they have this very serene, relaxed continence, body will seem relaxed. But it doesn't mean that inside it's, it could be this amazing storm of emotion and thought. But there's this way of relating to that movement. If we relate with spaciousness, with wisdom, then it's like we've learned this art that Guy Armstrong was talking about, where we're letting things move, but we're equanimous. We're not reacting to it. We're not taking it personally. And that's very healing to be able to do that. It just takes practice, though. So it is a, there is a certain tightness, and it's good that you bring it up, because it's like we should acknowledge that to each other, and how it is easy to, to sort of justify repression, because we need to tease that out. We don't want to repress our emotional life. It's not, the practice is not about repressing bad emotions, bad thoughts. That doesn't work. It just it creates constipation, literally. I think we have to end it here. Sorry, Mary. Unless it's just a quick thought, Mary. Yeah. Bring it back next week. So take a few breaths and let go of the word. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.